1: And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to resiliency, disaster, crisis management, business continuity, emergency response, and anything relatable to those topics. I'd like to remind everyone I will be in Toronto at the Continuity and Resilience Today Conference, May 29th and 30th. So please feel free, come see me, and uh, maybe uh, we can get your comments on the show at some point. If you've got any topics uh, you'd like us to talk about on the show, again, send me an email at the Voice America homepage for the show. There's a button. You can send me an email. Or if you've got any questions you'd like to get answered, uh, maybe we could uh, capture a bunch of questions and uh, eventually somewhere down the road have a show where we address them all. If you'd like to uh, talk about or promote a product or service, also, get in touch with me and we will see about uh, getting you on the show and get some advertising put in place for you. And today's show is brought to you, brought to us actually, I should say, um, by the people at Stone Road and Boast Assessment, B-O-A-S-T, assessment.com, where you can just uh, do your own self-assessment of your program and uh, maintain it and see what, uh, where you are, where your deficiencies are. Um, and that's BoastAssessment.com. For long-time listeners, you know I read a lot. Um, I love uh, getting books to get new ideas for myself, teach myself new things. I may have been doing business continuity or resilience uh, disaster planning, whatever you want to call it, for over 20 uh, years, nearly 21 years but I still like to learn new things. You know, different indus- industries have different perspectives, different uh, people around the world have different perspectives. So I'm, a, I'm always looking to get new books to, to enhance my own ideas and skills and teach myself things. And recently, I got a book that I thought was rather interesting, I liked the viewpoint of it. Uh, the book is called The Cure for Catastrophe, How We Can Stop Manufacturing Natural Disasters. And I reached out to the author, who is a global risk expert, a professor, and obviously an author, and who is today's guest. And I'd like to welcome to the show, Professor Robert Muir Wood. Robert, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you. And and for that introduction.
1: Oh, I'm glad to have you on the show. I found the book really interesting. It was a Kind of a different viewpoint than uh, many other books that I've got. Um, but before we jump into the book, you know, and our little uh, loose agenda that we've got here, can you tell our global listeners about yourself, you know, um, your your experience, your history, and uh, where you are uh, today?
2: Sure. I, I mean, I've, I've been working on the subject of the disasters and what we can go on to talk about today in terms of what is a natural disaster for the last. 20 or 25 years, mostly in, in the area of risk modeling. How you how you can make a a model of the risk, and how that model can then actually teach you how to how to manage that risk better, how to price it if you're an insurer, or how to how to, to guard against it if you're if you're some government organization.
1: So what do what do you do now? I think you're calling us from England, right?
2: I'm, I'm, I'm calling from England, I work for a, a company called Risk Management Solutions, which is a, a, a global risk modeling company, and I'm actually the head of research in that company. And so and my, my, my work really involves looking for expanded applications of, of risk modeling, um, new areas, new risks, new, new ways of trying to measure risk.
1: Well, considering the world is always changing, I'm sure that's uh, quite the challenging role you've got there.
2: Yeah, I know it's, it's both challenging and extremely interesting because, I mean, every, every time a, a significant event happens, there is a lot we can learn from it. And in, in, in a way, the, the bigger the event, the more the learning we need to do. And that learning needs to be applied in a way which can help prevent that that event happening again or that, that disaster happening again in the same way.
1: Well, I know we're going to touch on that a little later. Um, so, but just before we get there... You kind of hinted at something just a, a few moments ago, uh, natural disasters and man-made disasters. Can you define that as you do in your book? Because I, I rather found that kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's an important place to start is that, is, um, I mean, the, the events or the hazards may be natural, so maybe the earthquake, the hurricane, the tsunami, the flood, but the consequences are man-made and they are based on, what and where we build, and how we issue and respond to warnings. And so um, there there are man-made hazards out there, which are man-made accidental, like the failure of some construction or engineering or containment or some offshore well blowout. And there's man-made intentional, clearly like a terrorist attack or war. And then we have... um, man-made disasters triggered by natural events, like, like the meltdowns at the Fukushima nuclear power plants in 2011. Um, and, and and then you get into kind of a, a difficult area, one you can argue about, is a wildfire natural or man-made, especially if, if, if this is a California wildfire. It breaks into a city. It's, it's, the fuel may not even be vegetation. It may be buildings. It might have been started by sparking in strong winds at an electrical transformer. So is thats that, is that um, man-made or natural? I think you might say it's a bit more man-made than natural. But um, these distinctions are important because if we think something is purely natural, then clearly we, we think there's not much we can do about it. But but I would say it's sort of we lazily use that word natural before disaster implying there's nothing we could do and we, we really need we really need to change our attitude about that um, because there is often a lot we can do um, I mean I use the example of I mean, there was an earthquake in central Italy in the summer of 2016 when uh, almost 300 people died and the you know that's as many as in a 747 crash um, and uh, you know, we should be outraged in the same way we're outraged about a crash. That actually, how did this happen? Why, you, why was it allowed to happen? These, these villages in Italy were well-known to be right in the heart of earthquake country. There's very good historical information. If you're making a list of the top 10 most dangerous places in Italy, then these um, villages will be on the short list. And you know, it's, it, this is no longer... Tolerable in the same way that these almost 1,500 people who died in the flooding of of New Orleans and the the Great Storm surge from Hurricane Katrina. I mean that is an an intolerable um, situation, which which clearly one can't simply blame it on a natural a natural cause. You need to focus on what what are the human elements of it. And um, I have a quote from. There was a a big earthquake in Argentina in 1944, and a geologist said uh, at the time, this was 75 years ago, he said it is within the power of builders, architects, and engineers to erase earthquakes from the list of of human scourges if they wish it. So if they wish it, once we understand these are not really natural disasters, then in fact it is absolutely in our power to do something about it.
3: Considering some of the, um, I guess you we could say settlements that are in some of these areas, they you, know, disaster-prone areas. I guess we could say they've been there for so long. Are we just afraid to move from there, or because we wouldn't have known maybe we wouldn't have known how disaster-prone they were when they first got settled? So how yeah, do they, we change when, that mindset now?
2: Well, we, you're right. When they first got settled, we we did, we often didn't have the. Uh, the information that we have now. I mean, for example, you know, we have a theory of plate tectonics which explains why earthquakes are concentrated in certain areas and a number of cities have, have grown up before we really understood this. And you know, if we understood what we know now, we would we would quite likely suggest that some of these cities might be better off if they were relocated. Now then there are lots of reasons why why well, you wouldn't want to relocate a city that it is? You know, it serves all sorts of other functions, as a port or as as um, an economic centre. But um, I mean, mm-hmm. we we then need to focus on doing everything possible to reduce the consequences of that event happening. So if it's an earthquake or if it's a hurricane or a flood, we there's a lot we can do to prepare. As there's, there's there's a a, a high standard. We can try and live to in ensuring that if the event happens, its consequences are much reduced. Um, so that's that's where that's where we need to focus. Is there a
3: reason that after that you believe that after a certain period of time we kind of get used to things and we don't want to move from an area or we, you know, because we hear the expression, you know, a hundred-year flood or the, you know, this is a a fire you, know, you only see every couple of hundred years. But that's happening more and more. So, is there a reason we're still not really stepping up to the plate to do things to mitigate I mean, all these disasters? The,
2: re- the reasons are that um, I mean, the in in the immediate aftermath of a, of an event of a, of a significant disaster, then there there will be the motivation to take some action around it. The action is going to going to cost money. It's going to cost money, and it's 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 um, going to require possibly ch- changing how things are done, how things are built, for example, and ensuring that everybody f- follows the rules. So I mean, it lasts a few years when there is this. You have a disaster. It lasts a few years that, that people are prepared to to invest in in actions in response, but that um, that gradually reduces through time, and people, you know, people's memory. Of the disaster fades, and um, and they're less inclined to actually uh, to actually take action. I mean, w- w- we can see, for example, if you look at the city of New Orleans, you'll find that it was flooded, it has been flooded, I think, about four times altogether, going back all the way to 1900. And after every Every one of those floods investments were made in trying to improve the wall around the city um up to a point i mean those those investments weren't infinite investments you know they were prepared to invest a bit to improve the wall and then they would forget about it until the next time the city was flooded and then they would then uh, they would invest again and this you know this time the flooding was very, very severe, and an investment was made of about fourteen billion dollars in improving the flood walls of New Orleans. But, but, um, but that, that money, um, they, they could have invested even further. That only protects them against a worst-case um, Category 3 hurricane. It's, it's not the worst-case Category 5 hurricane, but they, they, they got a price for what it would cost to um, protect, and that would be $70 billion, and they weren't prepared to raise that level of money. So you know, the city has been protected so far, and actually the city is continuing to sink and at some point in the future, almost inevitably it'll flood again i mean that that may be fifty years away hundred years away but uh, it''s, it's you know, it, it'll happen again, and then the this question about reinvestment will be will happen all over again
3: and It's interesting you mentioned that with New Orleans still sinking you know, they, they say the human race is very adaptable, and then you mentioned that you know we also have short memories that um you know, are, are we slow to adapt to you know, our, our changing environments? You know, we have a short memory, so we put a bandaid on it, so that it may not happen again. But then it always does. So, is there something that we're we're not doing properly? You know, well, I mean, to well, help.
2: Well, I mean, what what we're not doing properly, you could say, is we're not um, we're not embedding the need to manage disasters into our culture. I mean I would say that um if you look at you know, there are some countries in the world where they have been successful at uh at, at such embedding so that it really you know, becomes absolutely key part of 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 how that culture functions um and in uh in you know, if you look in if you look back in history and you find um societies which have which have been most successful around this. In, um I mean there's one country that, that really stands out which is uh, which is the Netherlands Holland um and the the Dutch um, chose to live in what in what in would what have been swamps effectively which they drained and and created fantastically rich farmland but as they drained them the land sank and they got more and more impacted by flooding and um and and they they had huge floods, huge floods came in from the sea, more than two hundred thousand people drowned in the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries, but but they didn't give up. they They created a system where every village appointed a, a water guardian, or the water guardians were networked together, and then they ruthlessly administered a system where you were responsible for maintaining the dikes that protected. Your an embankment that protected your land, and the, a man called the Dike Count would turn up every year to tell you what you needed to do to keep your defence um, prepared, and then uh, come back and impose fines or confiscate your land if you weren't if you weren't uh, keeping your your embankment uh, up to the right standard, the right height, and um, they they did this and got better and better at it through the. The 16th centuries, and, and by the 17th century, they were really on top of the situation. They were really managing their whole flood risk, and um, I mean their prosperity and government was built on the shared national interest in flood management. for what they call the polder culture in the Netherlands, which they still celebrate today, it's sort of way that everybody is involved. It's not just left to some tenure. Technical engineers, but everybody is sort of participates in it. And the you know they said at the time, God made the world, but the Dutch made Holland. That uh, the Dutch had really made their land out of out of the swamps. Um, I mean that that is a fine example of where this has gone right to the heart of of, of the culture of the country.
3: Yeah, that makes a big difference. I, I didn't know that it went back that far, but they've kind of made resiliency a part of their daily life. You know, that's the way. They are, you know. But didn't the Japanese try that at some point? Because I, I recall reading somewhere they had markers at certain places up on hills or something saying, don't build below this marker or something. And, you know, for a long time, things were fine. And then, you know, memories got short and uh, they started building below these markers.
2: Yes, I mean, in, in Japan, did Japan also, I mean, it's a country which you know, is very Disaster impacted both uh, from earthquake and from floods. In fact, or earthquake and tsunami and floods, and uh, and they have, you know, they have, um, they've also made this very much part of their culture. And they they tell stories about it and teach um, teach all the children about uh, about it, about the importance of, of. You know, this is a collective response to disasters that ev- everybody. Needs to be participating in it. I mean, you, you mentioned these marker stones. So when they had a big tsunami in the past, they would um, they would leave behind marker stones, which indicated how high the tsunami came up the up, up the side of the hills, in order to warn future generations about uh, if you if you build below this height, then then you are at risk. Um, I mean, that that assumes that. Um, that the, the height to which the tsunami reached was the sort of maximum, which actually got them into a bit of trouble. In fact, because um, the I mean, it, it was there are some parallels of the situation in New Orleans and Katrina and the Japan tsunami in 2011, b- because um, the government had built tsunami flood walls along sections of the coast, the Pacific coast of northern Honshu Island, and um, they they the people assumed that if the government had built a, a, a flood wall, then they would be protected. Um, and so many people came and lived in the, the land um, which was protected by the flood walls. So um, when, in, in early 2011, the, the, a huge earthquake was felt by, by people who lived in these coastal towns and the tsunami foghorn sounded... Um, it was up to 30 minutes warning before the tsunami arrived. But actually, quite a lot of people stayed in their houses because they assumed that if the government had built them, the walls would protect them. And um,
0: mm.
2: now, we, this this was in fact a problem because this tsunami on this occasion was an, extra, an extraordinarily big one and actually overwhelmed the tsunami defences. And, and uh, around 20,000 were killed. So, so um, it's it's. We, we really need to have a good understanding that, that, you, know, that you can have events beyond, beyond the size of the last event you may have experienced. I mean, that in um, you know, this occasion, it encouraged, encouraged people to believe they would be protected when, in fact, they weren't.
3: Like a false sense of security. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of our first segment. Today, we're talking with author Robert Muir Wood and the book, The Cure for Catastrophe. We'll be right back.
4: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's info at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected.
3: And Welcome back to the show. Today, we're talking with author Robert Muir Wood and his book, The Cure for Catastrophe. Robert, in this segment, I've got a question for you. How do we Stop manufacturing national disasters, which is actually the you know the, the the tagline on your on your book here. So, what are we doing now in society, you know, anywhere in the world, that are contributing to you know disasters when a hurricane occurs? What are what is it we're doing that makes it even worse than it maybe should be?
2: Okay, well, that's a that's a a, a big question. So, um, there's <laughs> there's. A lot of our activities are, are clearly, you know, if we don't think about, we don't understand actually what has the potential to happen. Then our activities, um, they tend to create more risk. We, we we tend to do things we we have the potential to build more in harm's way. Um, the uh, and and um, it's it's actually really important that um, before we take decisions about where we build and how we build, that we understand. What are, what are the hazards at at those um, those locations? I mean, one one um, I like to tell one story about um, this this question: how we sort of how we teach about disasters um, with respect of um, a story of the three little pigs and the big bad wolf, which was a story actually originally written for children in England in the middle of the nineteenth century, and uh, we we are pretty clear that the author of the story was, um, he'd, he'd been through a big windstorm event and so the story, I, I see, I'm not sure if the listeners will all know the story but the story is that um, there are three little pigs and one one little pig, the, the big bad wolf blows down his house of, made of made of straw another little pig builds a house of, of, of twigs of, of wood and that's also blown down but the third little pig Builds a house of brick, and the and the wolf, which is really the windstorm, can't can't blow it down. Now this story makes every every bit of sense in England, where the sort of one of the worst hazards you can experience is going to be a big winter storm. But it doesn't make any any sense in California, where your biggest hazard is uh, earthquakes. And um, you know, you could you could um, reverse the story. The, the pig that moves into the brick house is the one which is when the earthquake wolf turns up. It's going to be the one which. Uh, it's most likely to fall down. And so the key lesson from this is that you really need to understand your your local hazards before you can decide how to respond. And you know, history is full of stories of towns and cities which, which um, didn't know what they were preparing for. And in, in history, this was often the case. I mean, I tell the story of the city of Manila in the Philippines when it was first occupied by the... Or, uh, or first uh, um, captured by Spain in the 16th century, they they built a city out of out of timber, and the the and within 12 years the timber city had burned down. So they rebuilt it out of stone, and then within about 40 or 50 years, the whole stone city had been knocked down by an earthquake. So the the uh, this question of how we build with respect to our our understanding of hazards is is a really important one. The, fir- the first step is to really understand what what you're prone to, what what you're building against.
3: So, how do we go about doing that? Because you know we're all around the world, we've all got different um, impacts to our areas. You know, I, before the show, I mentioned that you know I'm in minus thirty two degrees right now here in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. So it's really cold. You know. What what do we do? Do we do a, our, get our community leaders to do a risk assessment, or you know, organizations do one? You know, how do we really approach that? Do we look, open up history books? You know, how do we really kind of well, get started on that?
2: Well, I mean, it's it's understanding if you like the, the, what we call the hazard climate. I mean, in the same way we have a climate which is bringing you bringing you extremely cold temperatures right now. The, uh, there's a climate of hazards. You, know, you could say the climate of flooding and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and tornadoes. They all have a kind of a climatology, and actually, we we need to be on top of understanding, especially the extreme events. Where do they hit? How how frequently they they happen? And there, uh, yeah, a huge amount of work has been done, has been invested in this in this question of researching. Um, Past events of understanding the the average return periods, you know, what is if you like you know, the probability of of the wind or the temperature or the or the, flood, the flooding reaching a certain a certain height or a certain severity, well, what what is that probability? Especially you, know, you mentioned the one in a hundred year um, extreme. We we do have a pretty good understanding that, oh, all around the world now of actually this basic what we call the hazard. Hazard climatology, the hazard landscape, if you like, and that's a good starting point in which to, to to then work to think. Well, what do we need to do to reduce the consequences? And it all comes down to you know, what actions are going to be most effective in in, in um, reducing the impact of that level of severity of a hazard on the built the built environment, on on the people, on the evacuation of people, on buildings in in Dangerous locations and so on. I mean, that is that is the
1: first step. So, is that where
3: um, technology comes into play now? That you know, we we have our hazard landscape. We know what our hazards are for our area. You know, and now we bring in technology to say, okay, what kind of materials respond or work best in this environment?
2: Yes, I mean the I mean the, te- the technology on many different levels is it sort of comes in. I mean. The you know there's the capability, the scientific capability to offer forecasts um, is a key part of this. Uh, you know, there's a huge investment which goes on in atmospheric uh, weather forecasting. There's there's um, you know, and, and you know, it's possible to deliver warnings of different durations for a whole range of different hazards. I mean, you know, in terms of knowing where the hurricane's going to go, knowing when the floodwater's coming, how, how how much warning we might have. Of um, even of a tornado, we make it a few minutes warning, and the you know, the only peril for which we haven't got forecasting capability now is is really the earthquake. Um, there is there is technical capability which is already installed in Japan and is being tested out in California and Italy and other countries where. Where uh, it's possible to transmit a message to tell you an earthquake is coming, so, so simply because the earthquake waves move, move much further than the electricity down a down a down a line, then or, or the, the optic information down a down a optic fibre, then we, you know, there's the possibility to tell people you may have 40 seconds before you're, you're about to be hit by a big earthquake, and um, that's already working in Japan. So there's, there's technology in the sense of of, um, information technology, there's there's technology in the sense of of, of there being ways of of building buildings which we know can withstand these extremes. I mean, it it is um, the the whole story of structural engineering and how it's it's been able to to, um, really comprehend how earthquakes cause damage to to buildings, um, that's something which has developed, is still developing, and still you know, considerable research schools of earthquake dynamics uh, in terms of the impact on on buildings um, going on to, to make it possible to improve the quality of buildings so that buildings can ride through an earthquake in the same way that a boat rides through the waves on the sea. I mean, it's... it's there's, um, there, there are solutions to these extremes. It's a, it's a, a matter of ensuring they are adopted when n- new building is constructed. Um, and there's, you know, there's lots of technicality into how that's, how that's being done.
3: What's well, interesting, you touched on two points. Um, one with the earthquake prediction. In a couple of weeks, I'm actually going to be talking to somebody who presented a paper in Manila, which you also mentioned, about predicting earthquakes. Um, so I'm going to have him on the show, how that works. And I liked your point that you just ended up on with buildings. I have a uh, family that live in Darwin, Australia, and now I can't remember the year, but they were hit uh, by a Tracy, major cyclone. Yeah. you know, Tracy, years, yeah, years 1970, ago. 1970,
2: 1973 yeah. or something on the yeah, the, wiped out,
3: wiped out the entire area, and yeah. now they've got new bi- building codes, and the homes are all built differently to withstand the the winds and and potential cyclones that could come through again. So they changed the entire way they were building, and setting things up. I thought that was rather interesting, that you happened to bring that up.
2: Yeah, no, so I mean, actually, it's, it's,
3: it's, go ahead. Sorry.
2: Yeah, no, I mean in in in. Tracy was a sort of example where where people were living in very lightweight uh, buildings, which were were, were great against um, keeping out the snakes and the insects, but actually completely hopeless at uh, withstanding strong winds. And and in this cyclone, the city was was razed to the ground, and and actually a number of people were were, were killed and a lot were injured by 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 this uh, these collapsing buildings, and they just. Totally changed. They totally changed their building code. I mean, you know, it's it's um, embedded in people you know, in the survivors' memories to such a degree that actually you know, they would ensure that um, anything that is built thereafter is, is is built to withstand very very high high winds. So, I mean, there you have a a community which has been so shocked by the impact of a really serious disaster that it's really tra- transformed how they how they've responded going forward. It,
3: it, it was, it was, uh, they had a kind of a museum and there was actually a room you could go in where they, you felt and heard the sound of what Hurricane Tracy or Cyclone Tracy, um, really? felt like. And it, I was scared, even though I knew I was safe, but just listening to it and feeling it was like, oh my God, I can't imagine anyone going through this, you know? And so mentioning, since we mentioned Darwin, are there other, uh, Areas in the world where we've picked up that gauntlet and said, you know, this isn't going to happen again. We've made some improvements. Are there other examples, positive examples, where we've done things like that?
2: Yes, I mean, I think there there are are in fact many examples. They're probably scattered around a bit, but um, I mean, the um, I mean, one example um, comes from California in in 1933. There was an, an earthquake on the in the Long Beach area of California near. Los Angeles and it happened um, it happened about five o'clock in the evening about an hour after schools had uh, had closed for the day and all, all the all the pupils all the children had had left for home and the schools suffered terrific damage um, and it was you know there was one estimate that up to five thousand children could have been killed if this earthquake had happened a few hours earlier we, we don't know whether that's correct, but in fact a local Local congressman actually took up the issue. He was also a builder, and he took up the issue and got the law changed that actually all um, all school buildings going forward would have to have their designs approved by structural engineers to make them earthquake resistant. And in, in, in 19, a few years later, by 1939, that was actually extended. So all the pre existing buildings had to be checked out and, and retrofitted to bring them up to standard. And uh, yeah, this was really. Um, an excellent response, which was, you know, from one location, it was then applied to the whole state. And, you know, the only, um, you know, the only bad fe- feature is that actually 1939 was not a good year in which to try and extend uh, the, these ideas all around the world. And if it had been another time, I think that would have happened. So, um, you know, only now that schools are starting to catch up in, in all other regions where they're impacted by large earthquakes and that you know, they have similar, similar rules beginning to be adopted. But, you know, you can see you can see excellent examples where learning has been made. And you know, at best, you want to extend that learning over a much wider and wider region so it's not simply a single city which improves. It's just those lessons can be applied everywhere. How do,
3: yeah, that's got me thinking. How do we take our, our learnings, you know, if we're making changes in Darwin, Australia, we're making changes in California, and the Dutch... You know, with the the floods, how do we take our lessons to um, other areas in the world? You know, places like Bangladesh, which is prone to, to floods. You know how how do we get them to to start changing what they're doing, or, or other areas? You know, places in Africa or South America, anywhere.
2: Well, there's there's a lot of, a lot of work goes on, and it it is it is a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge, in particular because um, the I mean in in. In a country like the U.S. or Canada, then then you'll you'll make changes. You'll make them the rule of law, and you'll then um, try and ensure they're being followed. I mean, you'll have some system of inspection of buildings, and you'll you'll um, you know, you'll make sure the building standards are being effectively followed. And that is the challenge in. Developing countries is uh, it's, you know, some of them have building codes, others don't. But actually, it's very, very hard to, to really implement them because that that requires it requires engineers, it requires inspectors, it requires a, a a system whereby what the inspectors want to happen is what actually ends up happening. And in fact, we you know, we we find. Um, a very strong correlation between the level of corruption in a country and actually the quality of its buildings. So, so in countries where mm. corruption runs very high, we, we find the levels of corruption uh, of of all sectors. There, some of the highest are in the building sector in such a country, and actually, it's extreme. It becomes effectively impossible to police a building code in the city of Cairo in Egypt, for example, or. In, in Bangladesh, you'll find a lot of buildings are simply built informally outside codes. And that is the challenge. The challenge is, is actually, well, the, the, the way we make rules in a, in a rich country, they, they may not work in a, in a developing country.
3: Does that mean, and you don't have to agree, bit, it's more of a comment, does, does that mean they kind of have to go through some disasters before they start, you know, some of the change in mindset occurs?
2: Um, that mean, a, terrible to a, see a, that. Yeah, I mean, a significant disaster is—I mean, I wouldn't say it's helpful, but clearly it will will um, will clarify the situation, um, or it, it, it can do. I mean, the the simplest way we know, which is which is to help help those countries, is actually to take them mm-hmm. on the path of of development. That actually um, you you see that a that a country which um, has reached a certain stage of development I mean well, once it ha- once it has a significant number of people who are going to be who are articulate who are able to uh, to help take action um we see that the countries start investing much more money in 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 actually mastering their disasters I mean we if you look back in Japan for example in the 1950s it was beset year after year by huge floods which uh, in some years were flooding more than a million buildings, and eventually they had a a big storm surge flood along the south coast in 1959, in which 5,000 people died. And that that, was as though they'd sort of reached their limit. I mean, the country was rapidly, its economy was rapidly growing, but they decided to invest a, a huge, a significant proportion of their economy in disaster risk reduction, which is what they then did over the next decade or two and they brought down the number of houses flooded and the number of people drowned in floods hugely, but by more than a factor of ten over a couple of decades. So they were able to show why, if you made it government policy, you could really take action and and have a real impact. And we can sort of see other countries, in China, it was probably in the 1990s, where the the experience of really huge floods had become had reached a point which was. No longer tolerable so sort of what I call the sort of the threshold of intolerable risk um, at, at which point they took action to um, to reduce those they invested significantly in flood defenses and flood warning and and the zoning of where you could build in cities and it's had had a, a dramatic impact as well so we see that um, development is in a way the, the i mean the best way of helping a country. Um, get the government action it needs is to help it how help its economy to, to grow.
3: And on that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking with Robert Muir Wood and his book The Cure for Catastrophe. We'll be right back.
4: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain
1: inspired really fast.
4: All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the River Oceanus. Creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com.
0: You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected.
3: And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Robert Muirwood, the author of The Cure for, for Catastrophe. And we've been learning a lot about um, you know disasters around the globe and uh, learning from them. And in this last segment, um, Robert, I just kind of wanted to talk about you know some decision making that goes on. You know sometimes the uh, we make decisions with you know lack of foresight and maybe sometimes the lack of you know you mentioned it too, short memories. You know, how do we really respond and prepare for for potential disasters? You know there's there's the uh, the balancing probability versus impact. What do we need to do to consider like as Emergency responders, or you know, city planners, and you know, and, and officials. You know, what do, what do we need to to take into to account for that?
2: Okay, well, thanks thanks for the question. I mean, we we live in a society that doesn't take the, the long view on these matters, and uh, you, know, you can see this most clearly in terms of how we invest in action to prevent disasters. So, so yeah, we know that it's, from an economic point of view, it can make a lot of sense to invest in advance rather than simply compensate people after the disaster has happened. But, but we also know, and there's been quite good studies on this, that uh, politically this may not be true. The, um, there was a study done of US disaster relief spending per citizen at the start of, the, of the, um, this new millennium, and they found that it was about 20 times more than spending on disaster reduction. So disaster relief was was 20 times more than spending on disaster reduction. It was also Mm -hmm. possible to show that if you do spend your money wisely beforehand, you can reduce the consequence of disasters by, 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 well, I call one figure of $7 over a single four-year election cycle. Another The disaster costs overall by an average of $15. So with multiples like that, I mean, you would absolutely think you should invest in disaster reduction. But the problem is that um, if you spend money on preparedness, and there's also good studies on this now, it um, it doesn't win you any votes as a politician. As a politician, you, you do get rewarded if you turn up after a disaster and offer assistance. Um, and hmm. so this this is this is a big problem, and it's something we need to change our way of thinking and hold politicians to account for the progress being made in reducing disaster risk. I mean, one example of good practice: the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Every year, they estimate the flood losses that did not happen, that did not happen, thanks to their their works, their dams and levees. Um, we we should be assessing how many lives are being saved as a result of the. Investments being made, and uh, and we should the, the only way it seems to me to hold politicians to account on this is to measure the risk independently, is to have an independent assessment of actually what is the level of disaster risk in some region, and prove every three or five years. That the investments are being effective in in reducing the risk and and to do this without having to have disasters. At present, who takes a disaster to teach us what is going on? We need to use risk modeling to measure what, what is happening without having to have a disaster.
3: and that is that why we experience some of the things we do? You know is that why New Orleans experienced what they did with Katrina?
2: Yes, you know, absolutely. In, in in the aftermath of Katrina in New Orleans it was possible you know the government came up came up with huge amounts of, of investment and they spent 14 and dollars improving the flood defenses of the city but actually if you'd asked them would you spend 14 billion dollars the day before Katrina they would have said no and they, uh, there had been many moves over many years to try and get even a, even a, a billion dollars or so of investment which hasn't had, had failed so um and that is because you know, the the risk or the 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 appetite for for taking action the risk it wasn't there until the event had happened and in a way, if you wait until the event ha- has happened it, you know, it is, it's like closing the stable door after the horse has bolted i mean you you end up paying twice, you pay once for the disaster and then you pay you pay again for all the costs of of, of the action taken in response to the disaster. And clearly, if you had spent that money in advance, you would have saved the whole cost of the disaster and all the loss of life, which, which also followed. Well,
3: what kind of things um, should we consider, you know, uh, as part of, you know, disaster risk reduction? You know, what kind of things should we put our money towards so that maybe we can get that, you know, uh, reversed? You know, spending money up front so that we're not spending twice as much down the road. What kind of things do we need to... Uh, can can we kind of do
2: Well we we need I mean as you said to start with you first we need to understand what what is your hazard, what's 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 your hazard landscape, and then you need to take appropriate action and the action is gonna kind of vary according to whether this is a flood a flood or a hurricane wind or earthquake shaking. I mean you need to take the effective response and um and you know that it's, it is worth looking around for what other countries are doing, what, what is best in class. Um, I mean, the, for earthquake, for example, the country of Chile is one of the most successful at present, and they really have managed to have a big earthquake in 2010 with uh, fewer people killed than in the in the earthquake in Italy which which was a thousand times smaller so one of the things that is successful in Chile is that building codes are respected builders are sent to jail if they're caught cheating the system um, the earthquake Ooh. culture runs deep every politician knows there'll be one or, one or more major earthquakes when, when they're in office and that uh, and all the builders know that they their buildings likely to be tested in their working lifetime and so I mean that's you know that's a country which is really um, has really got the right focus on this. I mean, it's it's it. Um, uh, if, if the if the hazard is earthquake, if the hazard is flood, then you're going to need a different response. But there are very good role models out there now for for countries and cities and, uh, and actions which are being taken, which are which really are driving down the risk. Um, they I mean, they simply need to be measured to show the progress they're making.
3: So you kind of have to. Um, almost make uh, repercussions for not following new policy, to to eventually get it part of the um, the way the society operates.
2: Yes, indeed. I mean, you know, if This is actually flood. I mean, there, there needs to be cast mistakes to get to get people to build safely, to to, to build in a in a it, to um, to build out of reach of the flooding if possible, to ensure that their 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 building survives. Um, an, an extreme event um the uh, it, it it again is a function of understanding the the, the, the local hazards um, those local hazards may be changing we haven't talked about climate change so far but i mean that that adds a, a level of complexity to all this because the the pattern of flooding or the, the wildfires in california are clearly changing in response to climate change so you need to be Taking into consideration not simply how things have been in the past, but how they may be changing, changing in the present.
3: Well, believe it or not, we're we're down to the last couple of minutes already. <laughs> um, do you have any closing comments or uh, anything you'd like to say about disaster risk reduction? You know, and your your book, The Cure for Catastrophe.
2: Well, I, was, I was going to tell one one story if I if I have the time, which is that about a ten-year-old a girl called. Tilly Smith, who was on holiday with her family in Thailand in on December the 26, 2004, because she'd learnt about tsunamis in a geography lesson at her school in England only two weeks before, she screamed at everybody on the beach when she saw the water receding, and there was, it was said she she saved a hundred people who who would otherwise have been impacted by the tsunami which came soon soon after. Um, and then there's a a Japanese professor of engineering called Katada who learned about the story of Philly Smith and who took it back to Japan and got and was allowed to teach a course um, in to all the all the children, you know, in the schools in one single town in in northern Japan. He taught them that actually that it takes self reliance and personal initiative to escape after a tsunami and thanks to his lessons when the The town was hit by this great tsunami in March 2011. Um, As a result of his his leadership, the children all led themselves to safety. So, every child who was at school that day survived, and while more than a thousand people in the town were drowned. And uh, so, good education is a really key part of of uh, of this whole venture and taking action on disaster risk.
3: That's wonderful. You know, I'm glad to know that, uh, you know, I I guess it's true, you know, it's going to propagate through. So we've come to the end of our show. Um, Robert, I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show and talking to us. Um, Your book, The Cure for Catastrophe, it's a great read. And thank you for sharing your uh, knowledge with us. I greatly appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
3: And to everyone out there, uh, just a reminder, be in Toronto at the Continuity and Resilience Today conference, May 29th. If you've got any questions or topics you'd like us to cover, again, send me a note. And uh, we were helped out today by the folks at Stone Road on boastassessment.com. So thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks, thank you to Robert Muirwood for joining us today. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't get to touch on climate change, and I think we uh, would have been uh, another interesting conversation, that's for sure, uh, with regards to disaster risk reduction. But in the meantime, thank you, Robert, for listening. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.